Some parents homeschool, others don't live near a school, and others simply can't afford full-time Jewish day school. Each of these families needs a solution that offers their children serious Jewish learning. That's why I created Kita. Kita is serious online Torah learning at an affordable price. With Kita, middle school-aged children receive online lessons each week through their Google Classroom and then participate in weekly Zooms with other kids from around the world. Children can enroll in the Chumash and Avi plan and study Chumash Shemot and Avi Shmuel, or in the Mishnah and Gemara plan, where we're learning Mishnah Brachot and Gemara Elu Metziot. If you'd like to give your child a leg up in his or her Jewish learning, now is a great time to join Kita, as our second semester begins on January 2nd. To learn more about how Kita can help your children grow and thrive in Jewish learning, visit kita.org and fill out the form. That's Kita. K-I-T-A-H dot O-R-G. Quad Weekly, hopefully you're soon to be once again weekly podcast about religious Zionism, modern orthodoxy, and everything in between. I'm here with Harav Johnny Salman. How are you, Harav Johnny? Uh, still a little bit of a cough, but Baruch Hashem, overall quite well. I totally, so much I'm totally... You started off with a spring in the step. Ah, spring in the step, so the cough is getting better, I hope. Slowly but surely. Next <laughs> one of us. Okay, we're here with Rabbi Malibravsky. Hello, Rabbi Malibravsky. how are you? I'm well. Are you feeling better? Are things uh, on the uh, no, looking I up? No, I still got the very a lot of pain from my shoulder. I have a broken shoulder, Oy. but Bezret Hashem. In this Bezret time, Hashem, everything should be, should be a, a kapara. Amen. Uh, <laughs> everything should be a kapara, but uh, we shouldn't need exactly. a kapara. My name is Ruben Spolter. I'm a bit on the mend as well. I've been suffering from the virus that shall not be named because we, we don't test for it anymore because there's no point. Baruch Hashem, we're on the mend, and uh, please God, we should all be well. Molly, especially you and your family should Amen. have a healthy year as Johnny Amen. as well for the coming year. Yeah. Okay. Amen. We have a special guest with us. It's a pleasure to welcome David Kerwin to our pod waves. Hello, David. Hello, uh, all of you. I hope you all are okay. continue to feel he- healthier and healthier. Thank you. Amen. Amen. Okay. Why do we have David Kerwin on? Well, uh, anybody who follows the goings on at the uh, at the Herzog uh, Yemei Yun Betanach saw David. Uh, around the around the Koran booth, encouraging people to buy his new book, which he wrote about Kohelet. So, first of all, just to read your bio that's on the uh, Koran Jerusalem website, David Kern is an independent scholar who has researched and public widely, published widely on Bible, Jewish thought, and philosophy and Hebrew language. Uh, I'm going to skip a bunch. She published in a bunch of journals, studied Yeshiva Kibbutzah Dati, and currently works as a technical writer in the software industry. Originally from America, as you can tell from his Israeli miftah. So, David, uh, first of all, I think it's unbelievable. It's such a wonderful thing that a person who does not work in clay kodesh and is not necessarily someone who, who, who's, uh, who's, uh, who's uh, um, an ish chinuch per se, spent the time and the energy and, the, and made, the invest, invest, <coughs> excuse me, made the investment to, to really 
delve deeply and to write a book on Tanakh. So first of all, Mazal Tov, that's really, really wonderful. But I guess, I mean, like, uh, I'm hoping to get a free copy, but uh, assume that I didn't read your book yet, and pitch me. What's the, what's the book? Tell me, what's the, you, you wrote it about Kohelet, there's a name to it. What's the name of the book? What's the book about, and, and why should I buy it? Why should all the many tens of thousands of RZ listeners around the world buy Kohelet <laughs> as they're going to prepare for, for uh, Sukkot? Well, thank you very much for the opportunity uh, to, to give you my elevator pitch. Um, I would say that for many, many years, I found Kohelet very difficult, uh, tedious, couldn't get much out of it. But after uh, an, an interesting insight, which uh, maybe we'll get further into a little on, I, I suddenly discovered fascinating connections between Kohelet and Sefer Breshit, between the lives of Shlomo and the lives of Adam Rishon, uh, various parallels, linguistic, thematic, and suddenly I discovered in the book that to me had previously been uh, very challenging and, and, and difficult, suddenly there was a plot revealed and uh, a story that I never saw before, which made it not only interesting, but actually full of hope and, and a, a fascinating book to read. So as much as it was fascinating for me to write it, I imagine it hopefully it will be just fascinating for, for you, and your, your, you and your listeners to read it. Well, first, first of all, let's go back a little bit. The name of the book is called Kohelet, the a, map to, a map to Eden, a map to Eden, a map to Eden. Okay, so, uh, I mean, you, you, you sort of like, you jumped the gun a little bit because for most people, like if they're able to focus on Kohelet, Kohelet is really long. Kohelet is a tremendous downer. I mean, like, you know, it's not, even with the, with the end, Sof Tavar, let, let's be honest, the vast majority of Kohelet is like, what is the point? And it's not something that people go into saying, oh, I really, you know, I'm looking forward to this reading. So maybe take us a little step back and explain to you, what do you mean? Like, you know, how, how, can you, how did you find, well, like, tell us a little bit about the story. What were you looking for? And how did you find inspiration in what's, uh, I guess, externally such a downer? So I think that we're... The fact that it's a downer is, is a challenge, but I don't even think that's necessarily the biggest challenge. I mean, we all read Echa, and I wouldn't say we... I, I got more out of Echa than I might get out of Kohelet, in, you know, before I get into it, because just having a big downer, but at least... Mm-hmm. Echa right, helps. but you read Echa in order to be down. Right, exactly. Like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm spending 45 minutes on Shabbat Cholom Moed on, in, on Sukkot. It's not something that I, like, I'm not choosing to, you know, ponder the, the, the importance of our existence or the futility of existence on... Cholamoid Sukkot. Right. It kind of seems the opposite if you think about it. Right. I think that though, the, the Kohelet, Ech at least feels compelling in a way that sometimes Kohelet just feels confusing. Yeah, that's and a great way to say For many years, I got, I got very little out of Kohelet for, for many years. One year, I actually um, broke my glasses because I fell asleep and hit my head in the shtender and shul during Kohelet. And uh, <laughs> so, about, it was six years ago this Sukkot that I came home one more time, came home from shul, and said, I got to get something out of this book. There must be something to it that I'm, you know, a book of the Tanakh. There must be something to it. Now, I, I had, I had um, for a number of years prior to that, become uh, a big fan uh, of uh, Rabbi David Foreman and, and his organization, Aleph Beta, which does a lot of these intertextual studies. And one of the basic things is just to sort of look at the text. So I, I came home and just looked at the text without even any real commentaries. And I started just noticing a number of parallels, textual parallels, to the opening four chapters or so of Sefer Breshit, to the lives of Namri Shon, to the stories of the garden, to the stories of Cain and Hevel, and it seemed very strange to me. I didn't exactly know what was going on. I saw, I mean, it was hard to ignore them. I found, eventually, I found dozens of these parallels. Um, but having learned with the um, methodology of Aleph Beta, I realized there must be something to it. It's not just a question of randomly that the, the Tanakh just throws in these parallels. There must be something to it. So um, 
after uh, investigating a little bit further, I discovered that there were parallels in the lives of Adam Rishon and Shlomo Melech. Um, they're both these universal characters who had, you know, the height of um, expanse they, in terms of their uh, exposure to the world. Um, and they both had a very intimate relationship with God in a very special place. And yet they both had a tremendous downfall, um, which were both uh, related to sort of a quest for knowledge, a quest for the tree of knowledge, a quest for knowledge that, Kohelet, that Shlomo talks about Kohelet. And I started realizing they were actually... Um, that the, the, the conclusion that I came to was that Shlomo, in, in, who the, you know, the book of Kohelet is attributed to, uh, could probably identify with Adam Rishon more than anyone else. And in that way, he mm. wrote or in, included in Kohelet uh, many references to Adam Rishon to show the parallels between uh, Adam's life and, and his own. And so that's where I started going from there. Molly. Yeah. So what that basically oh, Johnny, means... Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Please. Come on, John. We're going no, to Johnny. please, no, 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 Johnny, you were talking. No, but Johnny, you were saying yeah. something. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> no, because what, what I hear from that and what I got from the book is not only are you reading Kohelet as being almost a commentary to the first few chapters of Sefer Bereshit, but that Kohelet is a spiritual biography of Shlomo HaMelech through the prism of his understanding of the life of Adam. So, as you say, it helps us understand Adam and Chava, but also, through studying Adam and Chava, it helps us understand Shlomo, because he's saying, read those texts, and you'll know me. Yes, I think that's true. I think, first of all, it's also important just to understand that, even without the connection to Adam Rishon, which I think is very important, um, I don't think necessarily enough attention is always paid to the life of Shlomo in Kohelet. Um, I, I've read, you know, <coughs> for some reason, this year a lot of commentaries came out on, on Kohelet, which I've read, and they're fascinating, by Dr. Eric Brown and Professor Yoni Grossman. They're all great, uh, and I really enjoy reading them. But they tend not to focus so much on the historical context of Shlomo. And I, I should give a caveat that I, I'm aware that, you know, I'm someone who's very interested in language. I, I write a lot about language. I'm aware that the language of, of Kohelet is uh, relatively late Hebrew. It might appear, you know, some ways, a lot of Aramaic borrowings and Persian borrowings. But the, there's no question in my mind that the, the, um, the, composition, the, the, the author of Kohelet, according to the way it's written, is intended to be Shlomo. It talks about a very wise king who had a lot of, who had a lot of uh, building projects, was very, you know, uh, very wealthy, talks about his wives. That, that seems to be clearly about Shlomo. And if you read the context of, if you read Kohelet, the context of Shlomo looking back at his life with some regret after everything that happened to him at the end of his kingdom, at the end of his reign, then you can see how Kohelet, much of Kohelet speaks, speaks to his story. And so, yes, I do think that Shlomo w was able to understand Adam's life better. In a way, you call the commentary, but even call it like an early form of Midrash. He, you know, he, he does a, you know, a, way, mm. of, a way of interpreting what, Adam might have thought for the sections of Breshit that we don't actually know. And also, it, by, by looking at Adam's life, because we know that sh if we assume that Shlomo found those parallels, then it sheds light on Shlomo's life as well. Again, we don't know a lot about what happened to Shlomo after he was finally um, uh, punished by God. You know, uh, Chazal even said that he was removed from his, from his reign. But either way, he certainly got the terrible punishment. We don't have a lot of stories. We don't have a lot of interaction with him. What did he feel after that whole story? So Kohelet is a way for him to express those, uh, those emotions as well. Uh, I, I'd like to just say, first of all, that a lot of what you've said very much resonated with me, meaning I have, feel the same way about Kohelet. It's like, the, it, until I read your book, I want to tell you, until I read your book, um, and also until I read one article, which I'll reference, I'm interested in your reaction to, it was just the Sefer of Tanakh that you just can't crack. Um, you know, like, Eicha is, as you're saying, it's sad, but you can crack it, you can, you can understand it, you can find the narrative, you can find the poetry, you can find the messages. 
I never understood what, you know, it's like that famous thing, if there are a million answers to the question, that means that like there isn't one good answer. That's how I've always felt about Kohelet. Why do we read Kohelet on Sukkot? And like 15 people are like all screaming mm-hmm. their answers, which are all different. And like, what's the, what's the message of Kohelet? And it's, it's, it's meaningfulness, but it's meaninglessness. But it's, you know, and, and there's been so much and none of it really resonated. And then I picked up your book and I want to just, you know, give the little plug here. It was also very easy reading. It's very well written. Um, yeah. It's, it's uh, <coughs> interesting. I, I, you know, you're, it's also, I think, for those people who aren't aware so much of like, the intertextual approach, I think it's a beautiful introduction to it. I think you lay it out beautifully. Um, in the book, there are like charts showing the psukim. It's, it's beautifully done. But to me, the most meaningful part of the book was really like, oh, I'm finally reading an explanation of Kohelet that I think is right. Um, meaning, it doesn't mean that I have to agree with every single thing you say in the book. There's actually one thing that you know, I, I was like, maybe, maybe I'll mention it to you or maybe not. But like, I was like, really? I'll, I'll say it now. You really think the Kohen Gadol was meant to go into the Kodesh Kadashim without any clothing in theory? That, that rubbed me a little bit the wrong way. But mm-hmm. <laughs> like I'm pulling out. Ooh, I'm pulling, that sounds interesting. It's fascinating. It's really interesting. It's a fascinating book. But I'm pulling out the I, I have one. To say that when, I, when I came to that conclusion, it was, I was working for some reason about two or three in the morning. And I was like, I oh, no, because yeah. I felt like, where am I going with this? But I kind of had to follow where yeah. my So that's you know, a spoiler for me, people so. who are interested. But what I have to say is the thing that I found most meaningful, this is, where, this is the question I'd like to ask you, because what I got, and again, it's, it's a great book. I, I think it's very compelling. I think the parallels you draw are compelling. Um, I think the Adama Rishon parallel is very compelling, especially in, in if, if you, what you're saying is this is the human experience. I think Adam is meant to stand in for all of humanity quite often, certainly in the Midrashim. Um, and so for for Shlomo to be using Adam to talk about the nature of the human experience, I think is very, very true. Um, so he, here's kind of what I got as the most important message of the book and the question that I wanted to ask you. So the, the closest I've gotten before I read your book to trying to understand Kohelet was reading an article by, I think his name is Richard Rorty, who talks about postmodernism. I don't know if that name rings a bell. And he basically argues that Kohelet is facing the, the like traumatic experience of the postmodernist who realizes that he cannot make meaning out of anything in the world, in the confines of the world. And therefore, his conclusion that saves him is there must be meaning outside of this world. Like, tachat Hashemesh, I will never be able to make meaning out of anything. Like, I'll try wisdom, and I'll try laughter, and I'll try hedonism, and I'll try X, Y, I'll try all the, of all the things, power and money and whatever it is. Nothing will satisfy me, under, and nothing will make sense, tachat Hashemesh, until he discovers that there's a God beyond. And that, to me, was like the first time I was like, I think that's right. I think that that's right. And I understood, and you can tell me because this was my understanding of your most important message in this book and what made was most satisfying to me, and I agree with you, all of a sudden, I, I felt like I was reading a narrative when I was reading Kohelet. Whereas before, it's like, okay, I, I think that there's a narrative, like the beginning, it sounds like Shlomo, but now I'm all lost because now he's talking about all kinds of random things and he's wandering around. And your book helps put it back in that narrative. And I think what your message is, and tell me if I'm getting this right, Shlomo has discovered that he had asked for wisdom, um, and he basically learned that wisdom, if not subservient to God, is worth nothing. Um, like even wisdom, right? Like, like there's, there's nothing in this, meaning which I take to, ta- to understand, basically any, any kind of self, self-motivated life's work will not succeed 
unless you subsume your will to God's will. So before I ask my question, is that a fair take on your, on your understanding of the, the ultimate point of Kohelet? I think that's pretty close to it, yeah. Okay. I, I would, the one thing I would just sort of add maybe is that I don't think it's, I, I'm wary about just talking about God's will right. like in a sense of obedience. Mm-hmm. I think there's something a little more to it. And I think it's about the way, this is, if you're talking about the, the overall human experience, I think this applies to us as well, especially at this season, in that it's, it's about a, a special relationship that Shalom had with God. And, and that relationship naturally had some rules, like every relationship or expectations, if you want to call it, that we all have in our relationships with, with, with certainly a spouse is probably the best example because that's a relationship we enter into voluntarily. And, you know, if, if those expectations are, are, are violated to the point where, they're, where the relationship is ruptured, then, then you can't really go back. And that's, that's what it's about. So it's, it's not about just sort of blind obedience, okay. but there's something to be, Shlomo, again, Adam and Shlomo, I think are probably unique in that sense. They, I can't really think of any of the biblical characters who had such a close, intimate relationship with God. And to throw that away was, was the real thing that Shlomo realized was not worth it. The wisdom and the wealth and all that didn't help. He really just wanted to go oh, back beautiful. to that time when he was, when he was a young kid and, and had that God offering what, asked what he wanted and okay. you know, just imagine what that was like. And, you know, okay. that was, so, that was, that was so here's the question that I'm going to still follow up on. Wait, wait, I, I need a little clarity because I okay. like, but, but I'm just trying let to, me ask like my question. Molly because, framed it as, yeah. do you mean this? Before you yeah. get to your question. And then you said sort of, but not really. So like, I, I kind of got it. I'm listening. I'm just listening on the side. I'm like, so what to you is the, the takeaway of the book in your words? What's the, the, you know, the message for us as we're reading this book in the way you understand it? The, the message for me is just it's basically like the famous last verse that, um, you know, everything that uh, uh, everything is about having that relationship, that intimacy, that connection with God by following his rules to be able to connect that, that relationship. It's very similar to what I said, just a little bit more focused on the relationship aspect than, than um than just being obedient to God. That's, that's which, is, which is quite beautiful because it kind of answers my question, right? Which is like, you know, and Ruby and I, had, Ruby had discussed previously, like how, you know, is this book relevant to modern orthodoxy? And I was like, oh, it certainly is. Because I think this is something that modern orthodoxy grapples with, which is, they're, they're, they're very comfortable with God. talking about relationships. See, there's no God in the there's book. No God. Like, that's if there's all... anything, there's relationship, but it's like my relationship, Chavaya Shali. And modern orthodoxy is much less comfortable talking about what God demands of us. And especially because it gets tricky because they're very scared of blind subservience and the danger. But I actually think that that's true. I actually agree with you. And I'm still going to ask you, right? I think you sort of started to answer it. How do you, so like for the reader, right? Let's say who's reading your book, you don't actually go into this. So I'm asking you as the author, like, so what's the takeaway I, for us? Like, and I like what you just said. It's like, find your relationship with God. Remember that that relationship is two-way. However, there is a commander and a commandee as much as there's a lover and a beloved, right? And figure out how to have that relationship. Would that be a fair way to say it? Including, obviously, the understanding that, you know, we have will and reason and, and we have to figure out how to be ethical. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I think that if you, again, let's go back to the um, Adam Rishon uh, uh, analogy. So it's maybe it's even a little easier for us to identify that than with Shlomo because we're not actually, you know, royalty, whatever. But, but Adam Rishon, you know, I, Rabbi David Foreman talks about this a lot, just the idea of like the, the image of the garden, how you have, you know, God's giving every possible tree, everything, everything you possibly want. And he had to have the one thing 
that he couldn't have. You know, that one thing was forbidden to him. That's the thing we. I think that's something we can identify with. There's so much in front of us that we can have. We can have, you know, especially in today's abundance and affluence, we have everything. But there's certain things occasionally we have to say, no, we're going to stop here. That's the kind of thing we have to be able to say. Um, there's a lot, you know, it, whether it's you're talking about, you know, your podcast, you know, Religious Zionist Weekly. So, you know, imagine people saying, you know, coming to Israel, there's so, you know, thinking about how many things were, weren't available 30 years ago when I first came or, you know, 80 years ago. We have so many things now, but yet occasionally there's certain things we can't do. We can't, we're here, we're limitations, we're, we're religious Jews, there's certain things we can't do. And that's, that's okay. Part of living a, a, um, a holy life is somewhat structured, somewhat limited, and that, that's okay. But if we give up on that one little thing, if we have to eat that one tree that's forbidden to us, then we're going to end up throwing the whole thing away. Yeah, it's beautiful. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back with a couple more questions for David Kerwin. Stay with us. Shalom, this is Rav Johnny Solomon, and I would like to tell you about the services that I provide to men and women around the world. Firstly, if you have a she'ilah, a halachic query or a halachic topic you would like to learn more about as it applies to your life, and you feel that you don't have a rav with whom you can discuss this question, I offer online halachic consultations. Secondly, if you have some theological or spiritual query, or if you're in need of some chizuk, I provide spiritual coaching. And lastly, if you'd like to learn about a particular Torah topic, I offer one-to-one learning. For each of these services, you can book an appointment for a small fee at my website, rabbijohnnysolomon.com, which seamlessly, with the magic of Calendly, then appears in my online calendar. And within a few minutes, you'll receive a message with a Zoom link. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to talking with you. Okay, we're back. Johnny, I'm going to turn the microphone over to you. Okay, so uh, I just want to also reiterate the compliments and the feedback that Mali's uh, given about your book, which is really, really wonderful to read, a really exciting, dynamic book, uh, which maintains a pace, and the chapters are short enough that you can uh, start it and then put it down. And, and also, they're also self-contained kind of almost modules. You can study one chapter and then kind of uh, look at it another time, which means for educated, if you want to make a course about... Uh, Kohelet, which I've taught Kohelet, this is like an absolute gift. Um, but I do want to ask one question because when I was uh, reading it over Avoshana, um, I did note that you say things clearly, and I wouldn't say bluntly in, in a bad way, but oftentimes Jewish books dealing with biblical figures dance around things. I'm just going to quote two things. You know, the idea that Shlomo saw him himself as a fool in his youth is evident in, in this verse, right? Uh, some people might recoil by saying, what you, you can't, you can think that, but you can't write that Shlomo saw himself as a fool. Uh, and then, for example, you write, Shlomo thought that for diplomatic and military reasons, he could violate the laws against marrying foreign women. We know this, but still, oftentimes, commentaries seem to... Uh, frame it in a way which isn't so absolutist and, and holds back from, shall we say, besmirching central biblical figures. Uh, have you received any pushback? I mean, this isn't your goal. Your goal is actually being absolutely loyal to the text, and it's really important for us to say this. You do justice to the text of Kohelet precisely because everything you're saying is emerging from the text of Kohelet and from Adam, and that's your whole methodology. You're not trying to overlay things with your own bias, your own agenda. Yet, precisely because 
you are coming without that sort of agenda, which is overly reverent, that leads you sometimes to make comments like that. So have you had any pushback um, it just in for readers who say, wow, this is a great book, but I can't believe you said that about Shlomo? I haven't had pushback yet. I'm looking forward to any pushback I can get, because that obviously is great for an author yeah. to have any degree of controversy and, and uh, have some attention paid to it. Um, Let's see if we can get you put into Cherem. Exactly. He went on the RZ Weekly uh, podcast, go. got put into Cherem, and then everybody buys the book. Um, I, w- I would say that, uh, you know, I know there's a, there's a major um, debate in, in study of Tanakh. I don't know if you guys have uh, addressed it in the podcast before. I'm sure uh, it's, it's something that you're aware of. I've, been, I've, I've addressed it plenty of times in plenty of places. Not on this podcast, <laughs> but yeah, go, go for it. Well, go you know, it. the question is how you approach the, the biblical figures. Do you approach them as, as, as uh, humans we can identify with? Are you approaching them as sort of... Uh, superhuman or, or, you know, figures that we can't touch. And there's, there's a, you know, pedagogical and, 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 and educational advantage to both approaches. I certainly come from the school that told me, let's let's look at the Tanakh as it's written and try to understand it from the Herzog approach from, uh, I studied in Shavad Agibbeth T, where a lot of the, that was also developed. I, I do have to say, this is my first book, and I'm probably a little bit, it made it a little bit easier that I was talking about Shlomo a lot, let's say. Because unlike, mm. let's say, you know, the famous... Uh, Chazal famously say, whoever says David sin is, is not, you know, an error. And I have to, if I was talking about David, I have to sort of deal with that, that challenge. But with Shlomo, Chazal were very critical. Uh, they talked about, there are two main mm-hmm. things they talk about Shlomo, which they don't talk about anyone else. One, that they talked about whether Kohelet should actually be included in Tanakh at all. So any, any, right. any discussion of Kohelet, I felt a little more freedom because they were, you know, they were willing to, to not include it in the biblical canon. Wait, they castigate him for things that... Uh... You know, not, that don't even necessarily appear in the text. Right. They, they really, they, they hand it to him. And, and, and they actually go so far, and this is like shocking, you know, I would never have said this myself, but they, the, 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 the rabbis debate whether Shlomo was worthy of Olam Abba. So like if Shlomo is not, if potentially mm-hmm. isn't worthy of the world to come, if I want to criticize him for, for looking back at his youth when he hadn't seen it, I think that's a little bit easier for me to get to go by. Um, but I think that, you know, um, I don't, so I don't recall anything that I said that directly contradicts any rabbinical statements praising Shlomo and certainly, I in the book talk about you know I follow the the midrash or the, the, the rabbinic approach that says that you know Shir Shirim in his youth and Mishlein in his middle age and, and Kohelet when he's older, um, you know that's something that I have no that uh, I think falls in line with with a lot of what uh, uh, I think the pshat is going on with all these books. But on the other hand, there's a famous Rashi actually that says that um, uh, the I, I wish I included the book. I hadn't really paid attention until after the book came out. Where he talks about you know there's nothing new under the sun. He says it's true in the natural world. There's nothing new under the sun. Uh, nature mm. stays as it is. But when it comes to studying Torah, there's, there's constant chidush. That's the one place in the world where you can have chidush is, is, is in studying Torah and, and, and developing Torah. So that's the place where I felt like, you know, if I said something new that maybe I hadn't said before, I felt that I was encouraged to, to do so because I just needed to follow the path that, that, that this, uh, this project took me. Wow. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, I, I want to talk to you about the book. Like you said, you mentioned it's your first book. You're not an academic per se. You've written some articles. Take me through, like, six years ago, did you, like, say, I'm writing a book, or you just started taking notes, and then it turned into an article, and then it, like, you know, take us through the process. What is it, what is it, what is in the process of writing a book for you? Um, that's sort of more or less what happened. I, I came back from that Sukkot, and I said, oh, maybe this will be a nice Dvar Torah I can give someday. And then I said, well, all right, maybe it'll be mm-hmm. a shear. You know, it's a little bit longer than that. I started collecting more and more evidence, and I said, well, okay, this probably be an article, you know, eight, ten pages. But the more evidence I collected and the more connections I found, by the way, the book does not only talk about Shlomo and Adam, but I eventually tie it into the story of the spies, uh, the Yom Kippur service, which, uh, which Molly referenced. Mentioned Korach um, as well. Korach. There's a lot, of, a lot of different things going on there. As I found different linguistic and, and thematic connections, I expanded upon it. Um, I had never written a book before. This is not something that I had done. It. Like I said, I do, I do I, I write a regular blog about language. I write an article published in t- tradition and, and other places, but this is something different. 
um, you know, it's a whole project. I, the truth is that, you know, I, I grew up in the, in the school of Torah Veroda, in B'nai Kiva, the old classic sense. I even lived in Kibbutz for a few years, you know, where the idea was you could, you could you know, have a regular profession and, and Torah would come out of it. You know, Pinchas Kahati, who, who wrote the, the commentary of Mishnah, was sort of a model for me. He worked in a bank okay. and he wrote the commentary mm-hmm. of Mishnah. So that was never something that seemed to me um, mm-hmm. that it, it, you can't, you, you must be in education, you must be a professor, you must be a rabbi in order to write these things. Uh, that's it. I wasn't sure I was going to go. Um, I do come from a family where people read books. My father wrote, uh, Shalom wrote about 20 books on education, so I was aware of the process of writing books. Um, unfortunately, he, he saw the beginning of the project, didn't, didn't uh, let to see its publication, but uh, I'm sure he's, uh, you know, uh, gave me uh, emotional and mental support along the way. And, um, you know, eventually just was, I was able to, through the, uh, the wonderful people at Koran, was able to... Uh, so you came to them with your man, with your manuscript, with your idea. Yeah, the manuscript. I wrote the book. I actually had taken an editor. You guys have, have, have given some praise to the uh, the way it's written. I, I mean, I certainly had worked on it myself. But the editors I worked with were great. They they gave me a lot of tough love, and they said you have to cut this out and move this around. And it was difficult, but I followed their advice, and I think that the the end, the tight, you know, the the, the project really is to their uh, to their credit in terms of how it how it flows. Um, I gave Corin the manuscript. They. Uh, together with also support from Rabbi Foreman and others, they they uh, they helped me move forward with it. And uh, I'm, you know, sometimes it's difficult to pinch myself to believe that I got here, but I'm really glad that, that I arrived where I am. I wanted to just say something about that, which I find really beautiful, which is um, you know, again, to bring it to the RZ thing. The, the, I think that what you've done here is like an example of the Renaissance that we often talk about on our podcast: the like religious Zionist Israeli creative um, kind of. I don't know, explosion that seems to be happening in this country. Um, we see it in all, in so many areas, um, music and, and, and neo-chassidud, and I think it's just everywhere. But I think you're a great example also, because you're, you, you know, like, ton, I, I mean, Ruby, you, you work for Herzog Global, like the whole, the, the, like the Torah that's coming out of this new approach to Tanakh, which definitely was born as you said, in Yeshivat Artzion, in the Kibbutz Adati, like, uh, uh, by those thinkers, scholars, rabbis, it's a, it's a renaissance. I mean, I think it's also beautiful that Reform is doing it. He's not necessarily, you know, you know, it's not only happening in Israel. But again, like, it's like there's this vitality. And what I think that's what's most striking to me, anybody can write a book, but there's an authenticity to it which I think is very, very moving, right? Meaning... I'm glad you think anybody can write a book. No, but you know what I mean? Like, there could be a lot of, like... Pro- productivity without feeling like it's authentic. And I f- think that what's most striking about what I'm calling this like renaissance of like, I'm, I'm kind of focusing on Israeli renaissance, even though again, it might have offshoots in, 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 in diaspora Jewry, but it feels that to me, at least it feels very authentic. Like the spiritual movements that are happening, the, you know, the, the, the ways, the new ways in which our know are expressing themselves, even though some of it's not always so simple, but there's something very authentic about it. That's how I feel. I feel like there's something very authentic about it. And I, I feel that way about your book. Like it wasn't just another cute book. It, there was something about it that spoke to me at least. Like, again, even if I, I don't necessarily have to agree with every single parallel you draw, but the truths that you're speaking and like your perspective on Shlomo and the messages feel very, very grounded and very authentic. And I, I do think that that's something, like, it's part, you're, and you know, your story, like, this, you know, Torah Vavodah, like, it fits into that whole picture. And I, and I think it's, I think we're very fortunate to be living in this time and to have, to have these types of um, experiences. I, I strongly agree. I think that, you know, a lot of religious Zionist uh, thinkers, from Rav Kook to, to many others, have talked about how the return to Israel is also a return to the 
Torah, the natural Torah, and I think that's it's it's on. And we're just kind of getting back in our in our you know shoes that kind of fit normally. We're not kind of in this weird situation where we had to kind of. And so, what allows us to do, I think, in many ways, in, in my book, but in many other um, aspects of this of this Renaissance you're talking about, is just sort of understand things that were difficult to understand before. It can be something like you know I don't talk a lot about geography and, and archaeology, but that helps. Uh, language, the fact that we're you know a native Hebrew speaker, I was able to pick up on. Um, nuances and linguistic connections that I probably wouldn't have if I had, even if I had been in America and known some Hebrew, might not have caught them as well. Um, understanding political things that, you know, what Shlomo had to deal with in his life were much more natural to us because we have to deal on a regular basis with all the challenges of, you know, how do you deal with the political life? How do you deal with the tension between, you know, a, a government and also, you know, the people and religious life in the country? These are things that are not foreign to us and we don't have to deal with it. We have to think about it all the time. So they're kind of in our, in our DNA now. And, and that, I think, leads me and, and many others to be able to, to take new looks at, um, at you know, biblical texts that might have seemed foreign to just a few generations ago. Because they speak to the natural uh, situation of Jewish people in their land and the challenges that come from it. Meaning, I, I think something, something you, you raised before, just the idea of like, having a Shlomo with an abundance but even, even we're having that challenge in, in our government now. Like, what do we spend the money we have on? If you have a budget surplus, like, wh what does it go to? What's the best way to think about how to invest? You know, are we a spiritual people? Are we a material <coughs> people? Excuse me. And th these are only questions that, have, that resonate now because we're in that situation. Whereas Jewish communities in the diaspora, no matter what, it was really a question of survival, not questions of priorities or questions of you know, wisdom and spirituality and growth and all, and all of those things, which I think are, are fascinating. I did want to ask you, do you relate to the question, the issue of Chazal want, you mentioned it a, a few minutes ago, Chazal wanting to, uh, like deciding whether to include the book in Tanakh or not. And how do you relate to that question now that you've reinterpreted the book in such a, in mm -hmm. such a modern way? Well, first of all, I'm very glad that they did, because otherwise I wouldn't have had something to write about right now. But, um, you know, I think it's, it's uh, I, I understand their difficulties. I talk about that a little bit in the book as well. You know, there are, there are, because I'll give a couple of reasons, uh, two main reasons why they wouldn't include. One, it contradicts itself um, at times. There's times, verses in Kohelet which contradict each other. That's one of the reasons they said it was they wanted to exclude it from the canon. Mm -hmm. And the other is they, it talks about how it, it needs to be, how it um, uh, contradicts verses of the Torah. And, and that was another issue for them. You know, it included uh, um, heretical ideas. Um, I think a reading that I was able to give um, by having Shlomo look back at his life with some regret and a degree of, I wouldn't even call it irony, cynicism, whatever you call it, some of those verses which, which seem problematic um, in, uh, when they were considering um, um, excluding it from Tanakh, I think are more explained. And, and part of it, I think, is just this idea of, one, one of the things I mentioned in the book is that um, it, you know, one of the common verses, that, one of the common words that most frequently appears in, in Kohelet is the word Hevel. And Hevel appears over and over again. It's also the name of, of Adam's son, uh, who was obviously, well, the, you know, was killed. Um, the, when Adam was, was punished with, but at the exile from the garden, he was also, this is the time when death was introduced into the world, but Adam wasn't the one to die. Um, the first person to die actually wasn't Adam, wasn't Chava, was his son Hevel, and it was very likely he felt some degree of guilt for this because he was, uh, it was his sin that caused his son's death. And so in a way, he, the book can be kind of almost like, imagine sitting Shiva, somebody who's had to, how would you deal with, how would you go to Shiva where somebody is, how would they react to the fact that the, 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 there's, dead child was, was their own fault. And so it's not in order. It's not in uh, a nice linear laid out well thing. And so some of these verses appear as contradictory. They appear as, um, you know, cynical. They're just looking back at both, you know, Adam's life, looking what happened, Shlomo's life, looking where he went from being building the enemy dash to being worshiping idols. How did they get to this place? It's all, it's the confusion in there, the contradictions that are in there 
are sort of um, understood in that in that context. You know, we often talk about and on this podcast, as you I'm sure know, because you're a regular listener, we often talk about the issue of complexity and the desire on the one hand to run away from complexity. And I guess you could say in the in the in the in the um, reticence or the the deliberation of Chazal, whether to include it in the canon or not, is do we embrace the complexity or do we try to sort of uh, avoid the complexity? And the end, the choice they make is to embrace the complexity and to understand that there are contradictions, that there are complications, and that that's part of their religious experience to deal with that complexity. All right, I want to turn it over to Johnny and then we'll wrap up. Uh, so, first again, thank you so much. And also thank you uh, for being prepared to come up with original insights. I endeavor to do that once in a while. Oftentimes people hold back. They think, who am I to say something original? And and I think that's what we beckon to do, especially a book which is so replete with the word Chadash or Chidush. I just want to say that I identify with Adam and Chava uh, because one of your Chidushim is, why is Hevel called Hevel? And you said because he's uh, a second twin, meaning, and uh, they weren't sure whether he'd survive the birth because this is a new thing. And as he breathed, they said, Hevel, that he's breathing. And and I'm blessed to have twins. And uh, my wife had an emergency cesarean because there was a worry about twin two. And I remember driving ridiculously fast to the hospital, running into the operating theater. The first baby comes out, she's fine. And I'm waiting to hear baby two breathe. And when she does, you know, it's like, we didn't call her Hevel, oh. we called her Liba because part, it was a concern about her heart. But in that moment when I'm reading this, I say, I know that feeling. I know that feeling of not knowing whether the second child is going to breathe or not and the relief when they do. And so uh, thank you for that. It was very, very heartwarming. Thank, thank you for sharing those because I was writing it sort of on, you know, a hunch. But the fact that you were able to, tell, to connect that to something is very, very powerful for me and, and really, really meaningful to, to hear that, that it resonated. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I think we're going to wrap it up here. I want to thank David Kerwin for joining us on our podcast. I wish you much on the book. Again, the name of the book is Kohelet, Map of Eden no, to, Eden. to Eden. Map to Eden. Eden. You can find it on the Kerwin website, on the internet. You should buy it, read it, enjoy it. Have all, but please, God, all of your readers that have a wonderful new appreciation for Sefer Kohelet as we enter into Chagas uh, Sukkot. Um, I guess I want to thank Molly and, uh, and Johnny Solomon. I want to thank my son for creating our music as always. Comments and questions, you can reach out to us on the interwebs through our Facebook page or our WhatsApp. David, you want to share your contact information if people want to reach out? Um, probably my name is David Kerwin, C-U-R-W-O-N. Uh, search for me, you'll find me pretty easily. I have a, a website called Balashon, B-A-L-A-S-H-O-N. I have contact information there. Um, I'm all over the place. You can find my Facebook and social media. Fantastic. Okay, you can find him on the interwebs as well. We wish you much atlach on your book, and everyone should have a gemar chatima tova. Have a great week, everybody. Amen.